In ninth grade biology, I distinctly remember the lesson we did on Punnett squares. I wasn't particularly good at biology, and I know my teacher was aware I'd simply given up. And that's an inherently disappointing relationship between a lackluster student and teacher. I get that. And more so, I felt it sting every time I walked into her classroom. I remember doing a Punnett square, and I remember we were using a couple of genetic diseases as examples. We used sickle cell as one, and I realized that I was the product of 25%. There was only a 25% chance that I would have developed sickle cell, as both of my parents carry the trait. The Punnett square divides it up to be 25% chance that nothing happens, a 50% chance I would have inherited the trait, and a 25% chance I would have developed the disease. My therapist and I always talk about stacked decks. We use a lot of thin metaphors for heavy conversations. We like to keep a balance. And sometimes I tell him that I wish my days weren't so complicated, that I wish I wasn't so susceptible to complications. He tells me that I've been dealt a lot of cards, a lot of cards that are difficult to manage with two hands and one body. He tells me that despite it all, I'm still moving, still trying, still learning how to be more agile and throw all of those cards in the air so that I have the freedom to do what I need to do before having to catch all of those cards again. And I know that, but sometimes it hurts. It hurts, you know. It hurts. My body hurts and my mind hurts. My body hurts. Moving hurts. My joints hurt. My ability to find love in good places hurts. It hurts. It hurts. It hurts. It hurts. I, I hurt. I hurt. I hurt. I hurt. To me, we are the most beautiful creatures in the whole world. Black people, outside and inside. teacher was the first person to make me feel uncomfortable about the composition of my body. It's not that I hadn't felt the pangs of being unlovely before. It's not that I didn't experience the dissatisfaction of my body as a black girl surrounded by a lot of white skinny girls. I knew that particular soreness, but not the abiding grief of my blood. In that same class about Punnett squares, one of my classmates asked the teacher what sickle cell was. My classmate asked a very valid question, a question I needed an answer for as well. Instead of answering, my teacher said, We don't have time for that now. If you have any questions, ask Jocelia. 
I felt the shock of an uppercut to my jaw. I felt like those ragged claws scuttling across the bottom of the sea that T.S. Eliot wrote about. I wanted my mama to whoop her ass. I wanted to whoop her ass. I wanted to drown her in the Atlantic-wide sadness she had irritated in me. I knew the eyes of the room were faced upon my back. The students in front turned around and looked at me. I probably would have done the same had I not been the target. And I know at that point I, I wasn't above the fierce curiosity of children. But I was the target of those eyes, and I can't remember if I choked back the tears and remained in the classroom or if I excused myself and went somewhere to be alone. Let's discuss some raw data. One in 500 African-American births results in sickle cell anemia or sickle cell disease. Roughly 90,000 Americans live with sickle cell, making it the most common genetic disorder in the United States, and 3 million people carry the trait. Only 44 states, along with Puerto Rico, the Virgin Islands, and D.C., have universal neonatal sickle cell disease screening. In Jamaica, the land of my mother, 10% of the population carries the sickle cell trait, making it the most prevalent disease in the country. Worldwide, it is thought to affect 500,000 babies per year. Sickle cell is a global health problem. It is no longer true that most people with sickle cell, especially in the United States, will not live into their 20s. Given research, albeit not what many would consider sufficient, and preventative measures, the life expectancy of a person with sickle cell is greatly lengthened. Sickle cell disease and sickle cell anemia are not the same thing. Sickle cell anemia requires two abnormal sickling genes, thus the condition is translated into hemoglobin SS or HBSS. I do not have HBSS. I have hemoglobin SC disease, which has one sickle gene and one, normal, one abnormal C gene. Hemoglobin SC disease is often thought to be less severe because of the slightly higher baseline hemoglobin count than sickle cell anemia, though, in my personal experience, that assertion is completely untrue. Sickle cell is not limited to the bodies of black people. I'd like to reiterate that. Sickle cell is not limited to the bodies of black people. Sickle cell is a disease of the blood, not arbitrary racial constructs of the United States. It is true, though, that sickle cell is more frequently represented in black bodies. Since sickle cell is not the product of sub-Saharan Africa, a term we should stop using, but of tropical climates that have have long histories of malaria, meaning sickle cell is found in Saudi Arabia, India, the Caribbean, Portugal, Greece, mainland Italy, French Corsican, Sri Lanka, and more. It's true, though, that a lot of people with sickle cell are from Ghana and Central Africa. It is untrue that people with sickle cell anemia or disease are unable to catch malaria. 
Actually, people with the condition are likely to endure more intense symptoms of malaria due to the significantly compromised immune system. And the whole malaria thing is only beneficial to those who have the trait. Now, what is sickle cell exactly? It is a genetic condition that affects the body's ability to produce normal hemoglobin. Because of a mutation to the hemoglobin gene, the red blood cells produced are rigid and inconsistently shaped, hence the name sickle cell. Rigidity is probably the most damning factor because red blood cells need to be elastic to properly flow through the body. They need to be flexible enough to get through capillaries. Since sicklers, a common name used to describe people living with sickle cell, do not have this ability, we are susceptible to bouts of pain and complications. The pain is usually the result of vaso-occlusive crises, which means the body is not the blood is not flowing easily in a part or many parts of the body, which induces agonizing pain. The pain is often razor-sharp bone pain, especially in the joints. Other complications are splenic sequestration, which means sickle cells get stuck in the spleen and the spleen enlarges, causing a huge drop in hemoglobin. Often, people who have sickle cell anemia don't even have a spleen because it becomes non-functioning after childhood because of so many episodes of splenic sequestration. Acute chest syndrome, which, in which sickled cells get stuck in the lungs. Necrosis of the joints, which can result in joint replacement, most commonly for the shoulders and hips. Organ failure. Blindness as a result of vaso-occlusive crises happening in the retina. Skin ulcers. Aplastic anemia. Priapism. Strokes. Compromised immune systems. High-risk pregnancies. General chronic pain opioid tolerance, and many more that I can't remember to list. Sickle cell disease does not affect all sicklers evenly. Just like everyone else, we aren't the same. We may face similar situations, but we should be allowed the dignity to be people outside of our disease. I'm not imparting this information because this is some sort of educational course for those who are unaware of the severity of not only a national health crisis, but a global health crisis. I'm imparting this information because I am constantly requested and often demanded to explain the importance of my life before I get the opportunity to live it. When you're chronically ill, it's hard to love your body. It's hard to know your body. It's hard to trust your body. I am so lacking in trust. Recently, I've been working through all of the dregs of my experiences with sickle cell, with medical institutions, with my friends, with my family, and myself. Being chronically ill, especially chronically ill with an invisible illness, leaves a lot of room for denial. I've always been aware of my sickness, but I shrugged it off better when I was a teenager and in my early 20s. I so desperately wanted to be like my peers and would try hard to keep up, often forsaking my bodily health for the fullness of what it means to be an unremittingly active young person in New York City. Now, 
I know to be this young and to have a body this devastating is a constant test of character. Being this young and this sick in a society that wrongly equates youth with health is an exercise in self-control. For the longest, I lacked self-control, and I endured the consequences, not properly piecing together, that the consequences my body endures are rarely ones that heal with time. Instead, those consequences become a laundry list of things that my body has inflicted upon me, things that I need to remember for the next hospitalization, clues and puzzle pieces, morphine dosages, and years and months of medical records. Mostly, the consequences produce fear. I find it funny when people refer to me as brave for handling what I've been dealt. I'm not brave. I'm terrified under the guise of reason. I'm terrified every single morning I wake up in pain or feel an ache in my leg or get a headache or go to sleep with the gnaw of pain in my back. I'm terrified every time my morphine stops working or I have to take a pill in public or I get caught in the rain or I'm exposed to the cold for too long. I'm terrified when I know I'm dehydrated and it's too hot out. I'm sometimes so terrified that I am suspended in stillness. I'm often terrified that I'm not long for this world. Perhaps that's dramatic, but I often have that thought and I've already had that one close call traumatizing enough to reinforce that concern. This past summer, I was admitted to the hospital for my most severe crisis to date. That crisis is now the semicolon of my physical life. For the most acute moments of my hospitalization, I was unconscious. Four days, mostly to completely lost. For the moments that I do remember, I was struggling against a doctor, looking at my mama, and feeling and watching my top eyelid slam into my bottom eyelid with the surge of power only fentanyl can produce and morphine can secure. Is that death? Just nothing? Did I wander shallowly into its waters? Do we make all of this love just to lose it? Is, is this it? I woke up with a catheter in my femoral artery and a catheter being removed from my urethra. Wondering what the hell was going on, I had an exchange transfusion. My first one, actually. An exchange transfusion is like a normal blood transfusion, which I had received a few days prior, but on a much larger scale and was given to me when I was admitted into the medical ICU. I was so high on fentanyl, I can't remember the faces of the doctors, but I do remember the voice of my mommy telling me that I would be okay. I bobbed in between a coma-like sleep and vague consciousness, and each time my eyes opened, my mom was right there. When I fully woke up, she was sitting in a chair a few feet away, and I called for her, and I saw the luster in her eyes. I knew that I'd done the one thing 
I'd never wanted to do to the woman who has loved me so completely. I had shaken her with fear. During that hospitalization, I received some very questionable treatment from the staff. Since this was not my first time at the show, I knew what to expect. I knew how to handle the condescension of doctors treating a young black woman who wasn't scared of them. I knew how to ask for what I needed. I knew to wheel myself tubes and IVs and all of that to the bathroom and cry quietly. I knew to let all of my emotions sink and concentrate on getting better enough to leave the hospital. I knew that I couldn't break inside that hospital. I knew I had to remember this laundry list, a two and a half week laundry list, better than the others because this list was very long. Pneumonia and vomiting blood, necrosis of the left shoulder, severe splenic sequestration, vaso-occlusive crisis of the left arm, infarctions of my kidney and liver as a result of splenic sequestration, and a blood clot in my femoral artery as a result of the hospital being negligent and leaving the catheter for my exchange transfusion in my femoral artery for too long. Now I have a history of blood clots because of that one event, and it leaves me vulnerable for the future. I was released from the hospital, unable to perform with any dexterity. Walking around my block was an accomplishment. Each action of my friends was a beautiful demonstration of love. I was surrounded by people who loved me back to health. My therapist visited me and told me a story about the pillows given to patients who've had open heart surgery. The pillows are a protective measure to allow the patient to feel whole and safe. My therapist got me a version of that, a large, soft teddy bear I named Clarissa. And my therapist told me to never do that again, told me that I have so much to live for. And there are so many people who care about me and that he was scared. All of those years, I've been telling him my own fears and to think my humble body, my body with a mutated gene could produce all of that fear in him in so many people I know to be stronger than me. The recovery process was where all the heavy lifting happened. I would wake up from naps having panic attacks, wondering why I was spared. I couldn't taste food and was on a schedule made by doses of medication. My body was swollen from all of the sickness and I hated my protruding and tender stomach and gangly arms. I wondered why I was spared. I watched my mama try to walk the tightrope of protective parent of an, a child and protective parent of an adult. I started taking hydroxyurea, a chemotherapy agent, and nearly passed out on the street. I slept a lot. I was sailing on the nauseating coast of 12-hour extended-release morphine and 4-hour breakthrough morphine. My speech was slurred. For the first time in my life, chronic pain set in. 
I have been in pain since last August. I'm in pain right now. <laughs> this winter was especially brutal on my body. I ached and thrashed and cried through all of the blustery wind and freezing temperatures. I've been stony and terrified. I've withdrawn. I've learned about forgiveness of self. And that's the most important part. I learned how to forgive my body by forgiving myself. I know there isn't much I can do but take my medicine, listen to the weather as well as my body, go to my appointments, and try to live as healthy a life as possible. I know that one day this will probably happen again and I'll have to go through this fear and doubt and forgiveness process again. But there's one thing I will change. I will empower myself by being honest with the severity of my disease. I will not let my youth dictate anything for me. I will not be embarrassed to sit down when I need to. I will allow my invisible illness to be visible by asserting my right to be sick and alive at the same time. I do not suffer from sickle cell. I live with it. Do not pity me or anyone with a disease or anyone who is differently abled. For pity serves no one but the person offering it. Pity serves as a distraction from the truth and is a selfish salve for those who do not live with quite the same circumstances as those who are ill. I do not pity myself even during my gravest hours, so please do not let my story or anyone else telling their truth inspire pity within you. Instead, offer kindness, offer empathy, Offer the openness of mind to not judge me or people like me when we go for a subway seat. Be mindful that the subway has specialized seats, not just open ones. Be mindful that not all illnesses are visible. Be mindful that there are a lot of us going through unimaginable stuff and sometimes sitting down equals not only relief of body, but mind. I've had people scoff at me for trying to sit. I've had people use my, use my youth as an excuse. I've been hurt by them, but I always understand. We've been socialized to care about what we can see. We're told to care about what's popular and inspires the most sympathy within us. If there's one request, I can make of you listeners, please cut sympathy out of your lives. It's destructive and keeps us at a distance from each other. Please remove sympathy from your emotional canon and replace it, please, with empathy. Empathy is an emotion that needs to be cultivated from the ground up. Often, empathy is cultivated through personal disaster. I do not wish anyone else to live with what I live with. I do not wish sickness or loss upon anyone. I do wish, though, that we take time with our emotions. Let our emotions have every single motion of care that a pen stroke or paintbrush does. 
We are so capable of loving ourselves completely. Thus, we are capable of loving each other completely. I know this is a long way off, but during September, which is National Sickle Cell Awareness Month, put on your favorite color of brightly colored lipstick or join your local sickle cell march if there is one or donate to a research lab. And please, stand in solidarity with us. We've come to the end of this episode, although not the end of this discussion. Sickle cell will forever be a part of my life unless they come up with a cure, and even then, sickle cell has in part crafted me into the woman that I am. I still have a lot of hope, though. I'm managing my pain and my mind's pain and all of my relationships as best as I can. You can expect more episodes about what sickle cell means for me, how chronic illness affects people's lives, and what we can do to make a more hospitable world for people with both both visible and invisible illnesses. And you guys know the drill. Follow the New Black Gospel on Instagram and Twitter with the handle New Black Gospel. Track the New Black Gospel on Tumblr at thenewblackgospel.tumblr.com. Email me at thenewblackgospel at gmail.com. And be sure to subscribe on iTunes by searching for the New, Gla- New Black Gospel or follow on SoundCloud. Thanks again, guys, for making these words our bond. With love and respect, this is Jocelia Hughes of the New Black Gospel.